Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone. This week, we have a really interesting set of guests on the pod. You'll remember Rollo Roscoe, the head of EMEA at Schroeder's, from our episode with the Value Capital Partners, and introducing Steve Gorlick, the head of research at Firebird Management. Both are professional investors who specialize in the Eastern European region and join Juan today to discuss how they made decisions up to the 24th of February when Russia invaded Ukraine. This discussion will include how they sourced and processed different information feeds, how they worked with their teams in understanding and reacting to the rapidly unfolding events, and processing the humanitarian impact of the conflict in a region where they have worked in for many decades. We hope that you find this session as absorbing as we found it during the time of crisis. Enjoy. Rolo Roscoe, Steve Gorlick, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Very well, very well, thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, so, the genesis of this meeting is unfortunately what happened a few months ago when Russia decided to invade Ukraine. And I had the opportunity to sit down with you guys and two other investors who will re- remain a name at the moment. In a pub, you all were all investors in Russia and Eastern Europe, and the invasion had just happened. And just, I, th- I believe that you guys guys have never met before, uh, but you share a pint. And we were talking, you ended up talking about decision-making and the decisions that you had made or, or how you were thinking about decision-making in the six weeks prior to the invasion. And I thought that was a really interesting session, a very unfortunate session, but it was an interesting session. And we thought that we could maybe recreate a little bit of that. Uh, but before we go into into that, could you please introduce yourself? So I'll start with you, Rollo. So can you please provide us with a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, thanks for the intro, Juan, and obviously having us today. Um, yeah, my name is Rollo Roscoe, and I work work here at Schroders. Um, I'm head of the EMEA department. So that is, you know, the main focus of that was investing in Russia, along with all the Eastern European countries and in the bench. Uh, but re- Russia has been my main focus for the last sort of eight years, really. So really getting to grips with the listed equities there, businesses, movers and shakers within the within the market, uh, whether that's owners or on the political scene as well. So um, it's been a fascinating journey, obviously, uh, in those in those years. So um, I've been grateful to have it. And uh, Steve, can you please introduce yourself? Sure, and thank you, Juan. Um, my name is Steve Gorelick. I'm a head of research and portfolio manager at Firebird Management. And Firebird Management is a firm that has been around since 1994. We're best known for investing in Eastern Europe. We started out by investing in Russian voucher privatizations uh, back when the whole economy was valued at anywhere between 5 and $10 billion. 
but uh, since then, we became one of the first investors in uh, Baltic countries, portfolio investors, one of the first investors in Kazakhstan, Georgia, Romania, pretty much look at all of Eastern Europe as our investment region. And uh, I've been with the firm for, it's hard to believe, but I think it's 17 years. It's been a blast and it's never a dull moment. <laughs> yeah, I can for sure believe that has been the case. I want to start by bringing back something that you mentioned that day on the pop. You were saying that you had read Annie Duke. Actually, this podcast started because we had a conversation with Annie Duke after she released her first book, Thinking in Bats. And we, we did, uh, we interviewed her for the blog. The podcast was not existent back then. And everything that she said, we thought that it was so interesting and so relevant for investors. And there was something that we could do or learn from her that could be applied to the world of investing. And one of the things that you mentioned that day on the pub was the fact that as head of research, you were, in the weeks prior to the invasion, you were asking, email, emailing your analyst team, and you were individually asking each of them what was their own assessment, their own probabilistic assessment of Russia invading Ukraine. And that number, or the average of that number, started very low. And as it progressed, it increased. But if you will correct me if I'm wrong. The number on that, on the week of the invasion, was not high enough. Was not, not was not very high. Is that is that correct? Right. Could, you, could you relate about how? Yeah, it was yeah ab absolutely. And for and I do want to start by saying that the book that you mentioned, Thinking in Bats, is probably one of the better books out there. And it's important to read for anybody, no matter what industry you're in, if you have to make decisions, the questions that Annie was asking, and the reminders that to ask how confident or how likely something to happen as opposed to yes or no. Those have been, that, that's a very important lesson that I'm trying to teach to my kids on a daily basis. Sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding, but you know. So Juan, you're absolutely right. We had a situation where we don't have a large investment team. We only have five people on the investment team. But uh, in the time coming, uh, leading up to Russian invasion of Ukraine, we were asking the question of how likely it's going to happen because the situation started developing. If you remember, I think it would, Roll, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was even as far back as the summer yeah. when uh, Russian troops started building on, um, on the border. And you didn't want to dismiss it. Do you, don't, you didn't want to dismiss it. But you wanted to be rational and analyzing because there's been a number of times in the past where you had saber rattling by Russia that ended up being nothing. And uh, even a couple of years ago, there was a similar situation and then uh, nothing happened. So what we were doing is we were asking and taking into account all of the information that was coming in. And the way that our research process works is everybody works more or less independently, but we check in on a daily basis, sometimes once sometimes more than once, and discuss what has been happening. But I did not want to be bringing up this question in a group discussion because you do have, if one person says something, there's an anchoring that happens as a result where everybody's answer kind of gravitates towards the same number. So I was asking the question of how likely do we think the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is to happen? And there was also subsets within that question of you know what would the invasion look like? Because that was also an important 
part of the decision process. And yes, so the numbers started out, I don't remember the exact numbers right now, but the average was at first below 10%. And we had some people on the investment team that thought it was more likely. Some people thought it was less likely. And, and you were u- using numbers all the time, not you were yeah, avoiding it was, words. It was numbers. It was on, on uh, how percentage-wise. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think is the likelihood of Russia invading Ukraine in any way, shape, or form? And at first, the number was quite low. But then it went up to, and on the average, even the week before the invasion, it was maybe a quarter. And we can get into why we didn't think it was likely, but that's a separate question. And then the second thing that we were doing is we were trying to understand that if it happens, what is the likely reaction of the markets? And then, would the stocks fall by 50%? Would the stocks fall by 10%, 100%? And then the combination of those two numbers would give you a expected value based on what our team is thinking of how a certain action, how market would react to a certain action. And then you compare that to what's been happening to the market already. Also, if you can ask similar questions of other investors that are looking at the region, it would also be quite useful because in our investment team, we have five people, but we've been working together for a long time. Mm. So it's very hard to avoid groupthink. You can try to do something about separating it, but it's very hard to avoid groupthink. We do, we work together for a long time. So it's, our opinions are going to be influenced by that. So that's what we were doing. And the one mistake, I don't know if you can call it a mistake or not, but like one of the things that we realized in, the pro- in that process is there's a number of uncertainties where you think you can try to figure out what is the result of a certain outcome, but what actually happened was we couldn't predict at all. So the, that n- not just the war, but the freezing of the central bank reserves, and there's, there's cer- certain things that happened after that as a reaction from the West that we didn't consider because it didn't happen in the past. So it's a learning opportunity, of course, but it's something to think about, always to keep in mind that there is a, there's things you know, there's known unknowns, and there's unknown unknowns, and that's the ones that are going to mess you up. Mm. Um, how was it for you, Rolla? Because I remember we, we were having discussions even uh, days and weeks before the, um, the invasion, and you were also thinking in probabilities, even if you were not maybe having that specific exercise, but you were having this Uh, you were assessing what were the odds based on experience. We had Dominic Miel on this podcast, and she is a f- big fan of decision trees. And Nick Kiraj asked her, how do you get better at estimating the probability or likelihood of something happening? And she said, well, based on experience. Now, you both guys have a lot of experience in this market, and a lot of that experience inform your assessment or the how you were calculating the odds. But how was that process for you? in the weeks before? How were you thinking about that and how, what type of discussions were you having with maybe people in the team or your analyst or other fund managers? Yeah, I mean, it's reasonably similar experience, I think, to Steve. You know, we've got quite a big team here and a lot of, you know, investment professionals with a lot of experience in, in volatile emerging markets and trying to assess when are good times to pick up assets at cheap prices, when the risk reward looks, looks at its greatest and to the upside, of course. This is this is obviously not a you know necessarily a financial decision that's being made, which sort of ties into you know rationality and rational thought. You know we think in financial terms because we're investors, mm. whereas this decision is something to do with a war 
and it's an emotive topic for individuals um, versus others who are trying to think in financial terms mm -hmm. and rationality. And then that brings into, obviously, you can tie this into sort of game theory as mm -hmm. well. What was the purpose of the buildup of the troops on the border? Mm. Was this all negotiating tactic to try and gain concessions with regards to Ukraine and NATO integration with the EU? All those things that um, was obviously thought of as a threat to mm. Russia. So in the lead up to that, <clears throat> you know, we can try and think in financial terms and probabilities. And we initially made the same assessment as most investors, I think, in the region did, that it was an extremely low probability of, a, of an all-out invasion, all-out war. Uh, then, of course, the other scenarios as well. Well, if there is going to be a war, then perhaps it's just in the eastern part of the, the country, in the sort of Donbass and the Hansk region, where they already had influence, really. So we also thought, well, what's the point of that? There's going to be enormous cost, but what are you actually going to achieve mm. by just basically making it official that these regions now under Russian control? Because they effectively were anyway. So when we were thinking about that, the probabilities didn't really change for a long time, even though there was a, a troop buildup. Because there's been troop buildups before, NATO, you know, exercises on borders, etc. It's a bit like the old adage of, you know, economists predicting eight of the last three recessions. You know, it's it's kind of there's a lot of, you know, risks that come and go, and obviously trying to filter which ones are the most important risks to take mm. action on is very difficult. And this was an unusual situation because the risks, you kind of they bubbled along, um, and some actors who had military experience or um, you know, perhaps better knowledge than we did from a, you know, from the U.S. intelligence services. Uh, they obviously made very strong statements um, that obviously, in hindsight, we should have listened to more strongly. But the only way that we tried to recalibrate our probabilities was discussing it on a daily basis mm -hmm. and coming up with you know reasoned thought and conclusions on that basis. But it was also listening to people who we thought were, were experts on the topic as well, and they tended to be political strategists that were living in Russia, as well as living in, in Western countries. Um, military advisors, obviously what you read in the press was a great source as well for us. And it was very difficult to really shift those probabilities until the final two or three weeks, when risks really did start to, to rise dramatically. Yeah, I want to follow on with a question about rationality, but before we go into that, I want to circle back to your point about the average probability on the Monday before the invasion being as high as potentially 25%. Right. What do you make of those numbers? Let's remove the Russian invasion to Ukraine for a second. I posted this question to Aniduk, actually, because there is this anecdote where Obama is being told by the CIA and a lot of the people in his staff that they know where Osama bin Laden is. And he but they are not certain. There's no certainty about it. So he asks, he goes around the table, he asks every single one of them, what's the probability of him being in the compound? And then each of them gave him an assessment mm -hmm. of their personal, what was the likelihood on a personal basis. And it went as low as, I think, 30% and as high to 90%. And so based on those individual probabilities, he said that he couldn't make any decision at all. It was a mess for him because it was the spread was just too, too big. So in order to improve decision-making, how do you make those numbers meaningful? What, what do you think? Well, it's a great question, but in a way, I think the first thing that you would want to do is want to step back and see whether you can make a decision at all. And 
just like in the case of what you were describing with President Obama, if you have to be honest with yourself sometimes that you can't make a decision or you need to be asking a different question. And then maybe stepping back and rephrasing the question differently, that's something that would help in this, in this example. I mean, we were in a situation where we could not not ask the question because this is, we are, as people who invest in Eastern Europe and Russia being the biggest and most liquid market in our region, we had to be asking this question. But we also, in the way, in the percentages that were, what we were trying to do is we were trying to understand how would each decision maker in this process act and try to understand the probabilities from their point of view, what is influencing their decisions. And that's part of the reason, and Rolla, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's part of the reason why we didn't think that this was likely because of the examples that Rolla just gave, where anything that Russia does from a military point of view, the gains were minimal, or seemed like they would be minimal, but the costs would be quite significant and uncertainty is high. And based on that assessment, not just on what we were seeing on the ground, but we were saying that the chances of the invasion are not that high, even almost to the, up until the day of the invasion. There was, uh, I clearly remember having uh, listening to a conversation with the former Ministry of Defense of Ukraine three days before the invasion, where he was explaining why it's not going to happen. And mm -hmm. he was in Kiev. For him, it was almost life or death. Like, mm -hmm. We were not mm -hmm. there, but for him, this was a decision that he had to make based on where he is, where his family is. And he was still coming up with the same, you know, similar outcome. And the one takeaway that we have kind of from looking back at what was happening is that it seems like we have been working with a different set of information than the people in Russia who are making the decisions. Where at least as the, in the first few days of the conflict, how it went, it was pretty clear that Russia assumed that they're not going to get resistance. And if that's your assumption, if you're being told as a decision maker that your cost, the military cost of the invasion is going to be low, then you put a much different likelihood in, on the positive outcome. And that's something that, you know, is only like has come into focus for us after the invasion, not before. Hmm. So, and I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or not, but like, so that was, that's what we learned from this process. But as far as how to make a decision better, I think it's really more about asking the right questions. Hmm. I think that's, that's a great point. It's, a, it's something I was gonna bring up as well, is that you know, we, don't, we didn't understand what the information that was being given for you know, Putin to make his decision. We didn't have that information. Normally, again, if the decision is around a financial aspect, then perhaps most people have similar information. Mm -hmm. You know, whether an industry should stop investing and reduce supply and allow prices to recover and returns to recover an industry after a, a recession, for example, similar kind of thing. But in this case, you know, we, we're not using the same information. It's an emotive subject on mm -hmm. one half of the decision making. And it's an individual who's making the decision. Well, from what we understand, mm -hmm. it's a very small number of people who are you know, using information that they perceive to be one thing, and we're using information and making decisions based on a more of a financial aspect 
what the cost of this is, whereas they think that the cost is worth the obviously the, the outcome. Um, Vitalik, can also mention on this podcast, and you know Vitalik quite well, Steve, he has this mental model called myopic circles, which is this tendency that we might have to surround ourselves by people that end up thinking or having the same behaviors that we do or thinking the same way that we do or following the same mental models. Is it possible that as investors in a place like London and maybe sitting in New York, we were all talking to the same people and the same sort of experts and there was no one with a different view that would stomp fist on the table and say, you know what, this is going to happen. I think I think in this situation we did try and seek out both sides. It's some it's a similar process that we have when we first look at a new company. You want to find out the people who are very positive on it, the people who are negative on it and the, and the rationale and you know make a decision, you know obviously based on all the other work that you do around um stocks. So it's similar in this case, especially given the fact that again coming back to the fact that we are more financial financially oriented and numerically orientated there is obviously some qualitative aspect to, to investing as well, a lot of it. Um, but this was a topic that we felt we didn't you know, perhaps know enough about and therefore we needed external expert help. And so you seek out the ones that are telling you that it is ab absolutely going to happen and the reasons for that and the reason and the, the people who tended to be actually more Russian, you know, who would sit in Russia and commentating on domestic politics, who were giving you the rationale for why this absolutely wasn't going to happen. Mm. So it's very interesting actually seeing that there was quite a divide. There was a lot of local political experts who absolutely ruled it out, pretty much 100%. Mm. And most of the political experts were sitting in London, actually, mm -hmm. and the US who were saying that this is, this is definitely going to happen, which was quite interesting. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any views on that? I absolutely agree with that. And there was plenty of voices, and especially military strategists, Who, and Michael Kaufman is one name that comes to mind, and this is a person who's been continuously following uh, this conflict. Uh, you can see it on Twitter. Who's been saying, look, Russia is doing all of these things that looks like they're going to invade. But going back to the point that Rolla brought up earlier, is that you have, yes, they were a number of times where Russia was doing the same thing and didn't invade. And from a military perspective, it had to look like this, whether you're invading or not, because otherwise everybody knows that this is pointless. So whether we were, I think we do try to get as many opinions as possible. Whether we succeed on it or not, that's a different question, but we try to get, try to listen to people both in Russia, outside of Russia, Uh, we have a lot of relationships all over Eastern Europe and places like Poland and the Baltic countries where obviously the impact of this conflict on, on those countries and the potential spillover is significantly higher in a country like Lithuania, for example. And uh, universally, not to go back to the same point, but universally, most people, most rational actors thought that this was not a likely move because it was irrational. It did not make sense. Which leads me to my next question, which is that every time that we talk about decision-making, there is a tendency to frame the decision-maker as a rational actor. But what if we are actually dealing with someone who is irrational? And maybe it's not that that person is irrational. Maybe it's that we 
or that person behaves or is looking at the world in a completely different way as we look and understand the world. So maybe his time frames are completely different from ours and that makes his decision look as irrational, but maybe in his own eyes or the eyes of those people that decisions are rational. So I guess the question is, as investors, how can we incorporate that irrationality element or maybe that element of someone just having a different view of the world that is very different from ours and 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 that's what leads us to some conclusions that by me might be wrong in our own eyes. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a tricky one because I suppose, you know, what we as you as you mentioned, what we perceive to be irrational might be another person's rational outcome. Um so if you if you kind of have that view or you, you get a sense that that is you know the opposition has a you know a more irrational view than well in your perception then i guess the range of outcomes is much wider you know, that you can think of and the probabilities of course that you attach to those become much more blurred or maybe more equal mm-hmm. um, to these wide range of probabilities whereas if you know there's two people who think in a similar way then perhaps you you can find a, a stronger consensus on what the what the outcome may be so i guess that's that i mean that's one of the big lessons of of this you know learning for me um, that the range of outcomes was much wider, the probabilities attached were clearly incorrect, you know, for me. Um, because, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, my feeling was that, you know, we were making decisions based on more financial terms and, and costs, economic costs, but perhaps we should have framed it slightly differently. And maybe to add to that and switch topics a little bit, whenever we are making an investment decision, there's always a person on the other side. Of that of the trade, whether you buy or selling, somebody else is making the opposite decision. So in our investment process, we try to understand what is their thinking because you shouldn't assume that this person doesn't know what they're doing. You this person, and especially when you're dealing with an emerging market as a outsider. So we've been investing in Eastern Europe for a long time, but we still do it from a office in New York. We travel quite a bit, but we understand that we're not insiders. So the people who are not the side of the trade from us, more often than not, will know more about the company than we do, will know more about the local peculiarities than we do. So how do you get comfortable with it? And the way that we got comfortable with it over the years and have, have been reasonably successful at it is trying to understand what is the decision-making for the people on the other side of the trade what is their time horizon, which is a very important question, and also what is their cost of capital, not to make it too technical. But if we are operating with a cost of capital of 5%, 6%, 7%, but the people on the other side thinking about it, unless I get my money back within two years, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy to get my money back within two years. Mm-hmm. And... I can put myself on the other side of the trade, and oftentimes you can have situations where you have something that is happening, some kind of a situation with a company that is short term, that you see, you have a likely view that very likely it will be fine year or two down the road. You just have to make sure that the company makes it to the other side. And with that, everybody's making a rational decision, but they're making it based on their facts and circumstances. It's understanding those facts and circumstances is where you end up being right or wrong. Mm. I listened about 
two years ago, I listened on a podcast the following an anecdote that a well-known fund manager gave. I think it was Masters in Business. And he was, this fund manager invests in emerging markets as well. He's quite big. And he made the point that, I think that he was asked about Russia. And this is happening in 2019. And he went on to say that Russia, if, if you would have invested in Russia in 1998, during the second half of 1998, you would have gone on to compound at 18% in US dollars for the next 20 years, beating every single market in the world, including NASDAQ. And when I heard that, I thought, nah, that's completely wrong. Uh, and I came to the office the next day and I checked it on Bloomberg and lo and behold, that was actually true. Russia had characterized itself by being a market where there has, there has always been a lot of fear uh, around what could happen. And Rollo, you were an investor in Russia for 10 plus years. And Steve, you've been around for 17 years investing in that specific market. What happened after 1998 happened again, maybe not in the same magnitude, but but those sort of crises where the market completely sold off and offered some great opportunities to make some great returns uh, were offered over the last 15 years. I don't know, you will correct me if I'm wrong, two or three times. And you guys not only survived those crises, but actually did very well out of those crises. So when you are assessing the probabilities of something bad happening a few weeks back, that is informing your own opinions because you had already seen this to a certain extent happening. So I guess the question is, so this is a little bit experience playing ag against you in a way. So what do we make out of that? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, there's, there's been many crises investing in Eastern <laughs> Europe. Um, there feels like there's one every five minutes. So we feel like we do have a lot of experience in big drawdowns in stock markets. And you, you learn over time, you know, to try and time investments to make the best absolute and hopefully relative returns. You know, obviously we're paid on a benchmark relative basis um, for managing the fund. But, um, you know, so we, we did, did gain a lot of experience and we did tend to make our best absolute and relative returns in the immediate aftermath of crises because you had a very good understanding of what the value of the business was on a more normalized basis. You tracked businesses that survived big recessions and crisis, economic crises, and you followed them and bought them on the other side. And they tended to take lots of market share and compound very nicely at very high returns. But in those events, there is, there's a market clearing mechanism because they're more financial in nature. Um, people stop investing, companies go bust, markets clear, and prices normalize. Um, the difference here was there isn't really a clearing mechanism to a war. So that is one of the major differences. You know, never had to invest, you know, when you know two countries go to war and hopefully never have to do it again in my life. Uh, but that's one of the major differences here is that you can make decisions based on numbers, as I say, market clearing, but this is this was not one of those events. And um, I guess to add a couple of a couple of points to that. One is that all of the crises that have, and there's been numerous as far as investing in Russia and Eastern Europe, one of the questions that we always ask is whether the operating environment for the companies as a result of the crisis changed dramatically or not. It's one thing to have a economic crisis. It's another thing to have what we have now is essentially capital controls. 
And that was never the case with Russia before. And we were, we did not think that we were likely to have capital controls, even in the case of the invasion, just because of how reliant Europe is on Russian energy. I mean, we're still trying to, the countries in Europe are still trying to figure out whether they'll be able to survive without Russian energy or not. But that was one of the mechanisms that, one of the things that we looked at as far as what is likely to happen and what is going to be the operating environment going forward. The second thing that, and kind of adding to what Rolo was saying as far as what happens during the crisis, is that so we don't invest in markets, we invest in companies. And these companies then operate within the market that they're in and the hand that they're dealt. And the great companies, and we tried to find the great companies, they will use the crisis to be better. They will cut costs. The marketing dollar will go further. They will gain market share as a result. And it's fine if you have, if your earnings go down for a little bit because of the demand destruction. But if on the other side, the, the growth rate for the country is still there, the market is still there, and you have a better player operating in a better environment, then this is absolutely the time to invest, especially if the stock price is cheaper. And this is something that would, one of the things that had been happening in Russia over 25 years, or 27 years that we've been investing there as a firm is that the quality of corporates has changed dramatically. When in the 90s, you had countries that, you had companies they were trying to figure out what capitalism is because they were coming, you had 75 plus years of socialism, of communism, where there was no concept of return on invested capital. How does that work? Hmm. What do you do with that? Like you had a plan, you build to plan. You don't care whether you make money on it. Mm -hmm. So you had companies that were emerging from that environment. You had business people who were running the companies and making mistakes and learning and over time, five years, 10 years, this is cumulative. Because when you go from 10 years of experience to 20 years of experience, it's not 10 years, it's a double. Mm. So you, we had companies, and especially after 2014, when access to capital in Russia has become more difficult as a result of the past conflict in Ukraine, you had companies that became much better from a point of view of decision-making and capital allocation than they were before. And they were cheaper. And they were doing all of the right things from a point of view of thinking how to invest capital, how to treat the investors. And in a way, that's, that's what trapped us into, into that market. Like We saw the potential risks with investing in Russia. We, like, we don't have a blind eye to it. But on one hand, you have that. But on the other hand, you have best in the world companies within certain industries mm. available for you at single digits multiples, as a value investor, it's very difficult to ignore. Yeah, I think that that's something that you you were constantly saying in the weeks before the invasion and, and the days after the invasion, how sad this was when the human uh, tragedy aside, as investors, those were really, were, Russia had really good companies and you had been meeting many of them for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 one of the very sad side effects of it. Um, you know, a huge amount of talent in in Russia. Um, 
especially on the technology side. You know, there's some phenomenal com companies there that we were invested in. He could have done some great things, not just within Russia, but on a more global scale as well. And you were just starting to see some of those plans uh, being sort of thought out and, and fleshed out. So, you know, this is one of the, you know, the calculations that you're making around the, the cost of all of this for Russia, because, you know, talent and people are movable objects. And there was a very strong sense that if, you know, there was to be a war um, and the sanctions that, that would pervade after that, that a lot of these people would just would just leave the country and seek other opportunities around the globe. And that, that, has, that has been the case. You know, there's been a, many, many tens of thousands of people who've left um, because they don't see a future in, in, the con in the country. And that will have a huge negative impact on some of these phenomenal com companies that we invested in that were doing some, some great things. Robert Armstrong on the FT on his column on Hatch, he wrote two pieces on Russia, one before the invasion, one after the invasion. The piece before the invasion, he was making the case that the Russian companies were good and they were uh, trading at very, very low valuations. It seemed as a very good opportunity. And he assigned a low probability of something really bad happening, which is pretty much everything that we've been discussing throughout the session today. Then he wrote another piece after the invasion saying that he had been proven wrong. And I think that he was resulting, which is something that I would like to bring up in a second. It's a concept from Annie Duke as well. Uh, in the sense that after the fact, he was judging he was judging his recommendation or his decision before the invasion on what actually happened. And there was something that he mentions in the in his column that caught my eye because he's saying that he makes the point he made the point about the Russian invasion being a low probability event. The fact that something has a low probability event doesn't mean that the probability is zero. Doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. I can make the point that I'm going to flip a coin and what is the likelihood of that coin being heads 20 times in a row? And you will say, well, it's very small. It's not zero, it can happen. And it can happen most often that many people actually realize that it can happen. Same thing happens for many of the people that were making the assessment on Russia. Even if the probability was very low, that probability was still not zero. Would you would you agree with that? Would I agree that the probability <laughs> was not no. zero? Yes. No, no. With the pro <laughs> would you agree with the, the fact that it's the fact that the probability was low and it happened doesn't make the the process behind the decision making wrong. Um. I would generally agree with that. I think one thing that we haven't really discussed here, and it's very difficult to be taken into account, is that what we're, what we're doing here is we're not flipping coins. And yes, likelihood of getting one quarter, one head out of 20 rolls is what it is. But the probabilities here are defined by decision making. So it is the likelihood of what is a particular person decides to do. This was not a random thing that would happen one out of four times mm -hmm. or one out of ten times. It was just how a particular person decides based on the fact that, facts that they have. And you as an outsider try to get into the head and try to figure out what is the likelihood of them thinking one way or the other. Um, yes, there's a some element of resulting from a point of view of now we're looking back at it and say, well, okay, we didn't take this into account, we didn't take that into account. 
who was uh, providing the information for for the for President Putin to make the decision that he that he has made. Like, we don't know, and now it seems like post facto should have been doing should have been taking this into account. Um, I think at the end you just you try to improve the process and hopefully you get to make more decisions. I think that's one of the things that I think this is Buffett was saying that like a string of any about bankruptcy, a string of any numbers multiplied by zero is still zero, mm-hmm. right? So if you are as a emerging market investors and part of the reason why we diversified away from Russia uh, into other countries within emerg- Eastern Europe is to have diversification where in, in emerging markets things happen and uh, things that are unpredictable. So you want to be more diversified to the extent that you can, to the extent that you're more, you feel comfortable with. That allows you to make more decisions later and learn from the previous ones. Whether it's the case of resulting or not, I think it's very difficult to say. Yeah, no, I think I completely agree with that um, and exactly how you phrased it on, on the resulting side. Uh, it's, the, it's the decision of, of one person or, as, uh, as I mentioned before, just a small number of people. And I, I just I don't feel like you know, I've had a, an accurate view of what information they're using to make their decision. And unfortunately, the probability, it, was, it ended up being 100%. It happened. You know, it's one of those things. So I think you've just got to accept that uh, you, know, you have to have a lot of humility in investment at the end of the day. You get a lot of things wrong. And this was one that I, I feel like I, I uh, just significantly underestimated because, because of the way that we perhaps think about the world is different to how the leader of a large nation that believes they're under attack or you know, has emo- more emotive feelings to an individual country um, than we do as a, you know, a Brit sitting in, in London making investment decisions, really. Um, but I totally you know, get the concept of, of resulting, um, but this, I think, is a slightly different situation to try and apply that, that concept to. So maybe it's a, it's a good time to actually define what resulting is, otherwise Emily will <laughs> need to define it herself. <laughs> so resulting is a concept, I don't know if it, came, if it was actually um, something that Annie Duke framed, or is it widely you, uh, yeah, used in poker? Do you know if that's the case? No idea. But resulting is just this tendency of judging an, an outcome judging a decision by its outcome rather than its process. I think that there's a lot of resulting when we think about events like the ones that just happened in, in Russia. And investing people in general, we tend to do or fall into resulting a lot. So as a conclusion to our session, I would like to ask you, how can we try to avoid resulting? And how can we communicate to clients and our investors the importance of avoiding resulting. Yeah, I think just going back to the resulting point then, I, I mean, I guess we would need to have a lot of experience in investing on you know, a pre-war basis. You know, we'd have to be in 1939 and understanding what's happening in terms of decisions that are being made with regards to you know, the build-up to the Second World War. And then we'd also have had to be in around in 1914 and so on and so on. So you know, getting the, the number of data points to make an accurate assessment of whether you are resulting in this case or not, I think is is pretty impossible. You know, you can replay lots of passes in a in a game, and and sort of get a sort of probability weighted outcome 
as to what something may be. But because this is such a rare event, you don't have sufficient data points, I think, to be able to, to draw a firm conclusion on whether you're, you're resulting or not. You know, my personal view is that I just simply got the probabilities way wrong because I couldn't get into the mindset of somebody else who was making the decision on the other side here um, sufficiently. Um, but I, I, I do, you know, get, you know, we make decisions, as I mentioned, that, that can be wrong and you've tried to apply your probabilistic outcomes to it in order to see what the risk adjusted upside is or probability of success of the investment. Um, and so, yeah, but we, but we accept those sometimes when they're wrong. It's like, well, you felt like the process was correct. You got the decision wrong. Okay, let's move on. Sometimes the process probably wasn't as good as it should have been. And you learn and recalibrate and then move on to try and make yourself a better investor in the future. Yeah, to add to that, it's there's two parts to result. There's a process and an outcome. And um, you can try to improve the process and the outcome is, is what it is. So one of the tools that we use is investment journals mm. where you try to note the decisions making that you were, the decision that was, that was go, the process that was going into the decision, what you thought and uh, into investment. And then based on the result, you try to figure out what worked and what didn't work. And one of the things that you can do with that is see whether there's situations at which you make certain type of decisions that lead to poor outcomes and then try to avoid those. And this is not big things like war. I mean, obviously, as Rolo was saying, you don't have a lot of, thankfully, you don't have a lot of examples where you have to make these type of decisions. But every time you make an investment decision about a company, whether it's in a particular industry, whether this is a company with particular attributes, those things you can control for, and you will more likely than not get to make odd decisions like that again in the future. And seeing what you thought the first time, and especially if you did it 10 times before, and you were right nine times, great. And if you were right two times, maybe you shouldn't be making that decision. <laughs> or somebody else should be making that decision. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of the process that we have in emerging markets, actually. Every six months we have a sit down and we, it's quite cathartic. <laughs> you know, you go through all the terrible decisions that you've made and tell everybody about them, and why you're a bad person, etc. But uh, um, it's an it's a extremely useful way of learning um, because it's just open, honest forum. And you hope that people take away some of the conclusions from it. And as I say, go on to be, make better decisions in the future. It's a very useful exercise. Honestly, thank you very much. This was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.